Hello, it's Vikas Pota, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. We heard a lot about 21st century skills and all those different intelligences that uh, exist or not exist. But the one thing that we want children to learn right from the start is to count, right? And to count and to calculate because that's a skill you will always need, right? Uh, and we are really happy to have one of the world leading experts on early numeracy, early mathematical development with us. I'm not going to steal any uh, more time from Ontario, Canada, it's Daniel Ansari who will talk about early numeracy and mathematical development. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you. It's an honor and a great pleasure to be here. And thank you to the Vaki Foundation and the Jacobs Foundation for putting on uh, this great learning sciences track. So children are infinitely fascinated by the world around them. They have a seemingly unquenchable thirst for knowledge. Young children want to become members of their society. And in order to do that, they want to learn the communication systems and the symbol systems that are salient in their culture. They see numbers on signs and billboards. They hear older children and adults talk about numbers and quantitative relationships. So young children are very much ready to learn about number, and they're eager to learn about number. My uh, five-year-old son, Leo, is no different. He enjoys playing number games on our living room floor. And when we encounter numbers in the environment, he spontaneously, without me prompting him, interacts with them. Indeed, under the guidance of expert educators, young children can be engaged in playful but meaningful numerical activities, such as this learning carpet activity uh, from Anne-Marie Ralph's school in the Toronto District School Board. This is a beautiful activity that playfully explores many of the central concepts of number, such as the relationship between numerical symbols and uh, quantities, and different forms of quantities and even spatial relationships. And kindergarten teachers always tell me that students can engage with these activities for hours and days, they can come back to these activities. Indeed, I experienced this in my own home. As I was preparing for this presentation, my son leaned over and looked at the slide and said, Papa, I want to do that now. So within minutes, we found ourselves on our living room floor, collecting all sorts of Lego and other materials that we had, and we tried to reconstruct this learning activity. So young children don't have a fear for math. They have a love for math, and they want to explore what math means to them. But something changes. Something changes between kindergarten and high school. Research from the University of Oxford by Anne Dauker has shown that children become increasingly frustrated with math. They become disinterested in math. For those of you who are teachers in the room or parents of older children, you may be familiar with phrases such as, no, I don't want to do my homework. I hate math, Dad. 
And this has very negative consequences because many children start to experience high levels of mathematics anxiety. A report published by the Nuffield Foundation in the United Kingdom just last week, authored by Dennis Schutz and other colleagues at the Center for Educational Neuroscience at Cambridge University, estimates that around 10% of children in the UK, and that's probably comparable in other countries, present with high levels of mathematics anxiety. And mathematics anxiety is measured by reliable instruments. And mathematics anxiety, the incidence of mathematics anxiety increases as a function of age. And students who experience high math anxiety start to avoid math, start to enroll in classes and even university courses that don't involve math. And we also know from research that having math anxiety changes the way in which you do the math. For instance, brain imaging research from Stanford University, from Vinod Menon's laboratory at Stanford University, has shown that when you put young children into a brain imaging scanner, a so-called fMRI scanner, and you measure their brain activity while they're doing very rudimentary math problems, addition and subtraction problems. You see that those students who have relatively high levels of math anxiety activate brain regions that are typically associated with fear and anxiety, such as the amygdala. In contrast, students who do not present with math anxiety activate brain regions that we typically associate with doing math, such as the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the intraparietal sulcus. What these and others data show is that when children have high math anxiety, when they're doing math, they're essentially doing two tasks at the same time. They're trying to do the math, but at the same time, they're also trying to control their negative emotions towards the subject. They're trying to deal with intrusive thoughts and ruminations. Oh, I just can't do this. Why did I agree to be in this study? These kinds of uh, emotions, therefore, take up cognitive resources that students would otherwise be dedicating to doing the math. So having math anxiety makes doing math a lot harder because it essentially acts like a secondary task in addition to doing challenging math problems. Now, the relationship between math anxiety and math performance is thought to be a complex one. It's not as though being poor at math causes math anxiety or math anxiety causes you to be poor at math. Rather, it's a cyclical relationship. It's a vicious cycle. So when you experience high levels of math anxiety, that leads you to avoid doing math and that avoidance, in turn, makes the whole situation of doing math more fearful, and so on it goes. So we need ways of interfering with this vicious cycle, creating learning opportunities that do not lead to math anxiety. What this also suggests, and again, this has been revealed by the recently published report by the Nuffield Foundation, is that when students have math anxiety, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad at math. Indeed, 77% of the students studied in the UK, it was a large nationally representative sample, 77% of students who had high math anxiety had perfectly good math skills. So in other words, having math anxiety doesn't mean that you're incapable of doing the math, which again means that for the majority of students, if we break 
that vicious cycle between math anxiety and math performance, we can actually help them learn math more successfully. At the same time, we also need to recognize that there are going to be students who have persistent math difficulties, sometimes referred to as developmental dyscalculia. And these students may not necessarily be math anxious. They need a different approach. They need to have individualized instruction that really targets cognitive weaknesses rather than emotional problems. So it's important for parents, teachers, and others to recognize that there's a complex relationship between math anxiety and math performance. Now, math anxiety is likely caused by a multitude of factors. In fact, we know that differences between people in terms of their genetic makeup can explain some of the differences between people in terms of their mathematics anxiety. But we also know that the way we talk about math, the way we communicate with children about math, can lead to math anxiety. Picture this scenario. You're sitting on your plane, you're on your way back from Dubai to your hometown, and you start chatting to the person next to you. And you tell them that you've just been to this amazing global forum on education. And that person gets curious and they ask you, so what kind of presentations did you attend? And you tell them about all sorts of presentations and maybe you also tell them that you went to a presentation on math, on math. Now, how surprised would you be if that person turned to you and said, I've always hated math. I really dislike math. Now, imagine that instead you told them about a presentation you attended on literacy. How surprised would you be if that person turned to you and said, I was basically illiterate until I was an adolescent, and then I had this amazing teacher who suddenly gave me a pathway into reading. I think we can all agree that, at least in most Western countries, we have a very high tolerance for negative attitudes towards math. We like to joke about how poor we are at math. I encountered this all of the time as a researcher doing research on children's math learning and math difficulties. People always tell me, oh, I wish I'd met you when I was a child. I really struggled with math. I hated the subject. Now, while that may be funny in the situation that you're in and you're having a nice chat, we do need to recognize that children take on these attitudes. They, they listen to us. We know from research that the math anxiety of parents can rub off onto their children. Research by Aaron Maloney and Sian Bylock from the University of Chicago has shown that parents who experience high math anxiety, when they do homework with their children, that leads to decrements in the children's math performance over time and also heightens the math anxiety of their children. So if you are a parent of a child and you have high math anxiety, you should think about the way in which you structure learning activities around math with your child or maybe you should just hire a tutor. Because research has definitely shown that your math anxiety can affect your child's math anxiety. Similarly, teachers' math anxiety rubs off onto their students. So we need more education around math anxiety and attitudes towards math in pre-service and in-service teacher education programs. These attitudes 
towards math are, are recognized by children from a very early age. And they then enter into this vicious cycle where math anxiety leads to poorer performance and poorer performance heightens the level of math anxiety. Oop. Oh, there we are. When you look at this picture, who do you think is struggling with their math homework? Who do you think is more likely to become an engineer? In many societies, there's a strongly held opinion that girls' brains are wired differently in such a way that they're intrinsically less likely to excel in math. Just think about the last movie or television series that you saw that had a main character that was a math genius. What gender were they? I think in most instances, with the recent exception of hidden figures, a male character comes to mind. In many of our popular cultural artifacts, this gender stereotype that there is an intrinsic difference between boys and girls in terms of their math competence is embodied in these cultural artifacts. Perhaps most infamously, Barbie doll. The Barbie doll went and press said, math class is hard. Thankfully, that line was discontinued. So is it true? Are there really intrinsic differences between boys and girls that lead girls to underperform in math relative to boys? Well, let's look at the evidence. Now, the overwhelming amount of evidence that we have suggests that there are actually more gender similarities than there are gender differences when it comes to math. I want to illustrate this by considering one set of data from the Program for International Student Assessment, or the PISA study, that I think most of you in this room are probably familiar with. As you know, the PISA study measures scientific literacy, reading literacy, as well as mathematics literacy. And it's tested in many countries around the world. 15-year-old children in many OECD member countries around the world take the PISA study. So this affords the OECD also to look at gender differences on their measures of mathematics literacy, but also on their measures of scientific literacy and reading literacy. So let's take a look at the latest published PISA data from 2015. Let's take a look at the mathematics literacy gender differences. So I realize this is a very busy data slide on a relatively small monitor, so I'm going to take you through it. What you see across the top are the uh, countries in which 15-year-old children were tested on the PISA mathematics literacy scale. And um, maybe you can identify your country if you have 20-20 vision. But it shouldn't concern you too much where your country is. What you should be concerned about are those blue bars. When those blue bars go up, that means those are countries in which girls, 15-year-old girls or girls in eighth grade, do better on math than boys. When the bars go down, those are countries in which boys perform significantly better than girls. But there is a nuance here as well. 
and that is in the shade of those bars. The dark blue bars represent differences in countries that are statistically significant. And the lightly shaded blue bars represent differences that are non-significant, that are simply a trend. So what can we take away from this? Well, first of all, we can see that when we look across the globe and we look at gender differences on a measure of mathematical literacy in 15-year-old children, we can see that there are gender differences in both directions. In addition to that, we can see that in many countries, the gender differences in either directions are simply a trend. They're not statistically significant. I think these data speak against the notion that there are necessarily intrinsic differences between boys and girls that predestine girls to perform more poorly on standardized measures of math achievement than boys. Now contrast that with the gender differences in reading literacy. I think this picture is pretty clear. Across all of the countries tested, there are statistically significant differences when, in which, whereby girls outperform boys when it comes to reading literacy. In my opinion, we don't have the same cultural conversation around gender differences in reading as we do about gender differences in math. And I think we need to ask ourselves why that is. And we need to address this stereotype. Now, you might reasonably argue with me and say, if you're looking at 15-year-old children, you can't really draw conclusions about intrinsic differences. They're 15 years of age. Maybe these effects are due to education. And education helps to buffer those gender differences, exacerbate those differences, depending on the individual jurisdiction, the curricula, and so forth. And I would say to you, that's a very reasonable question. And we had actually addressed this. In the Numerical Cognition Laboratory at Western University in Canada, we had the opportunity to look at data from 1,500 children in grades one to six. And we tested them on very basic numerical competencies, such as being able to judge which of two numbers is larger or being able to place a number on a number line. And what we found was consistent with the PISA data and other studies, that there's overwhelming evidence for gender similarities on measures of basic numerical competencies. So even when you look at foundational skills, there is no evidence for strong gender differences. In fact, the only gender differences that we observed emerged as a function of age. So they weren't there in the first graders, but maybe they appeared by grade five or six. Now, Jessica Kandlon and her colleagues went even earlier, and they tested the quantitative processing abilities of young babies and the counting abilities that Simon mentioned in the beginning of two to three-year-olds. And again, in a paper published in the Nature Journal Science of Learning, they showed that there's overwhelming evidence for gender similarities rather than gender differences from infancy onwards. This information, in my opinion, needs to find its way into teacher preparation programs, but also parents need to be aware, and policymakers need to be aware. Because just like is the case for math anxiety, children listen, and they are sensitive to these kinds of stereotypes. Research at the University of Washington in Seattle has shown 
but that by second grade, both boys and girls think that math is for boys, and boys identify with math more strongly than do girls. That's a problem, because that leads female students, again, into a vicious cycle where they experience the stereotype, and that leads them to expect less of themselves in math, and might lead them to avoid careers in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, so-called STEM disciplines, where they're very much needed. So we need to be aware of these gender, of the absence of gender differences, and we need to get the information out there that there's overwhelming evidence for gender similarities. So what I've told you so far about mathematics anxiety and gender stereotypes surrounding math should worry you, because math really does matter. And math is not something that is only restricted to the K-12 classroom. Math is something we use in everyday life to inform our basic decision-making and our behaviors. Think about what you did this morning. You probably were in a hotel room somewhere in Dubai. You woke up, and the first thing you probably looked at was either your phone or the alarm clock to tell, to tell you what time it was. There, you were processing numerical information. Then you might have turned on the television or your computer, looked at a newspaper, looked at your stocks, looked at your bank account. All those situations involve processing numerical information. Maybe like me, you forgot what the time difference was between uh, your, home, uh, your home destination in Dubai, and uh, you try to remind yourself of that and try to estimate when you could call your family to tell them about the conference, to tell them about how your trip had been. In all those situations, you're using your basic numerical abilities, and you have those abilities because you were taught them through the process of education. Now, you might say to me, well, Daniel, that's, that's interesting, that's good, but uh, really, you know, nowadays, um, you know, we all have high-performance computers in our pockets and sometimes even on our wrist. Hey, Siri, what's the square root of 68? I'm immediately going to get the answer. So why do I need to know that? Why do I need to have that mathematical knowledge? And in fact, in education, there has been somewhat of a backlash against knowledge-rich curricula. The argument has been that with the advent of computing and the internet, we don't need to have that knowledge in our heads because we've got external devices from which we can retrieve that knowledge. Instead, we should be teaching so-called 21st century skills, critical thinking, uh, analysis, and collaboration. Of course, I'm not going to stand here and argue that those skills aren't important. But I am going to argue that we shouldn't replace knowledge-rich curriculum solely with so-called 21st century skills. But instead, we need both. One of the reasons we need both is because making mathematical mistakes can be extremely costly. I think this picture speaks for itself. Another example comes from the famous Mars Orbiter. NASA spent over $200 million on this beautiful piece of machinery. It was sent into space in 1998, and shortly after that disappeared. People were trying to find out why. 
this loss of funding, this loss of potential knowledge. Incredible. Well, funnily enough, it all boiled down to a simple calculation mistake. NASA had asked Lockheed Martin to manufacture one of the pieces of software that was critical for this Mars orbiter. But Lockheed Martin forgot to tell NASA that they were using imperial units and NASA was using metric units. So one of the pieces of software was calculating something in metric units and converting it into imperial units. And that is the likely cause of this crash. So mathematical mistakes can be extremely costly. And I think we owe it to the next generation for them to give them a chance not to make those kinds of mistakes. Nowadays, mathematical literacy is also really important because of the amount of information that we're being confronted with. We live in an age where there's so many different information streams. And anybody can post anything on social media and it can be consumed and misinterpreted. And if you're not mathematically literate and you look at this poll about climate change or global warming, you probably wouldn't immediately recognize that those numbers just don't add up. They should add up to 100% and they just do not. It's important for the next generation in this age where we have a lot of misinformation, where multiple streams of information are trying to influence us with numbers. We owe it to our children to educate them about mathematics so that they can be critical consumers of the information that is coming at them and that they can act on that information in a rational and informed way. This also applies in rather trivial situations, such as going shopping and actually being convinced by somebody trying to sell you a certain amount of saving. So I hope these examples have convinced you that we still need math in our schools, that we owe it to our children to become mathematically literate, not just that they can get good, good, get good grades and get into university, but that they can be independent thinkers, that they can be agents of change in our societies, that they can build the next technologies, that they can be informed and ignore information that is simply mathematically inaccurate. So where do we go from here? How do we change this picture? What do we do next? What do you do next? Well, I would argue that we need to base our math education system on evidence. We need peer-reviewed evidence, and there's quite a lot of it around how children learn math, how their math learning interacts with other domains. We need that science of learning to influence the way we think about education and the way we teach our children. So what does that look like in practice? Consider what has happened in the science of reading over the past three decades. There's been an explosion of knowledge. We now understand a lot about the building blocks of reading. And that has led to very good evidence-based tools for identifying children who might be at risk of falling behind at an early age. School boards in many jurisdictions now regularly screen for individual differences in reading achievement from an early age. That doesn't mean they're diagnosing children with dyslexia at age five, but they're using those measures to help teachers differentiate their instruction. They're helping teachers to identify children who come into the education system without certain building blocks. 
I would argue that we need the same in math. My lab at the University of Western Ontario is trying to take some baby steps towards that. And using what we know about foundational skills in math, we've put together a very brief screening instrument that we call the numeracy screener. You can go to numeracyscreener.org and you can download it for free. You can even get some Ontario reference norms. And you can read more about the test. These kind of freely evidence-based tools can help teachers to differentiate their instruction. And we're working with school boards throughout Ontario to make this a reality, where teachers administer the screeners and get feedback reports that do not only tell them how well students are doing, but they also give them suggestions for next steps. In addition, we're trying to scale this tool to different contexts, to different environments. So together with collaborators, we have run some pilot work in Ghana as well as in India. Since this is a paper and pencil tool and since numbers don't need to be translated across languages, this is a tool that can very easily be scaled globally. And our hope is to adapt the website to provide country-specific reference norms for educators and teachers to use to inform them about foundational competencies of young children coming into school and to perhaps prevent the onset of learning difficulties by catching children early. Because we know that children come into school with a variety of skills. Some have all of the foundational skills in place, others do not. And those that do not typically come from disadvantaged backgrounds. But fixing early education or attempting to improve early education isn't a panacea. We can read many statistics about the payoff of early education. For every dollar you invest in early education, you get X return. And I'm not going to dispute those figures. But we also need to recognize that research shows that the effects of early education, even high quality early education, fade out over time. So what we need, not just in math education, in education more generally, is a sustained evidence-based approach that recognizes that, for example, in math, children will come to real stumbling blocks. For example, when it comes to the transition from whole numbers to fractions, many children find that incredibly difficult. We need an evidence-based approach to help children succeed making those important educational transitions. And in this context, we also need to avoid ideological debates. The math wars have been raging across this planet for decades now. These are real ideological debates around how should we teach math. And they tend to be very dichotomous, where one camp argues that we should be teaching children procedures, they should know their math facts, and the other side argues that we should be teaching children an understanding of math. They need to understand the reasons why math works the way it does, not necessarily just the procedures. Now the answer, what this results in, is pendulum swings. And, um, sorry, pendulum swings between so-called discovery math, which emphasizes conceptual understanding, and a back-to-basics approach that emphasizes procedural understanding. In Ontario, this math war is raging right now, where the new government is introducing a back-to-basics curriculum. And teachers are up in arms because they've been implementing a more discovery math or conceptually-based math program thus far. 
Math education shouldn't become a political football. Instead, we should heed the evidence and build balanced curriculum because we know from decades of research that children need both. They need a solid foundation in procedural understanding, but they also need good conceptual understanding of math. So to sum up, there are many problems facing math education today, but I think they're all fixable. I think at the societal level, we need to change the way we talk to our children and to each other about math. We need to recognize the critical importance of math in our everyday lives and communicate that to our children. We need to avoid children starting to believe in false gender stereotypes around math so that we can have more girls being mathematically engaged and believing that they can go into science, technology, engineering, and mathematics careers. At the individual level, we need to recognize that there are students who will present with very persistent difficulties in math, and they need evidence-based, individualized remediation approaches. I think we can all agree that all children have a fundamental right to be literate. I would argue that equally, all children have a fundamental right to be numerate. So let's heed the evidence that we have, and let's make a change to math education. Thank you very much. Thank you, Daniel, for this powerful presentation. We do have 10 minutes for questions. If there are any, I see some, always at the end of the room, but that's okay. <laughs> I need to get some exercise anyways. Can you say any more about the evidence behind both sides of the maths or the discovery maths or back to basics? Yeah. Is there any evidence that suggests one approach is more appropriate at different ages or different aspects of maths education? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. So uh, I guess it's a two-part question. The first one is that from work by Robert Siegler, Bethany Riddle-Johnson and others, we had overwhelming evidence whether it comes to fraction understanding or basic uh, arithmetic, that uh, there's a very iterative relationship between procedural fluency and conceptual understanding, and that they go hand in hand. What's been more difficult to establish is what should you start with first? And there's still some debate over that, whether it should be procedural first and then conceptual. But I think by adopting curricula that take a more blended approach to both, you know, that take other principles into account, such as spacing and learning, and having lessons that involve some you know, procedural fluency and some more conceptual elaboration, uh, we can achieve that kind of iteration. But I think there's more work to be done on the second part of your question as to the specific domains of math that you're teaching. This has been in a few domains, but it hasn't been, for example, explored in geometry or in algebra yet, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, I run a middle uh, school in India, mm -hmm. uh, which is from a low income, uh, the students come from a low income background. Mm -hmm. So uh, as you said, like, like literacy has always been the focus. Similarly, an achievement gap has always been the focus in literacy where students come to middle school with a high reading gap. But yeah. like s s uh, on similar grounds, a numeracy gap is not equally focused, mm -hmm. right? So is there any research or any recommendations when students come to middle school with one multi-variable levels 
and two with a lot of numeracy gap like not even basics of operations done mm-hmm. does it make more sense to drill procedures or like again the same thing right like or should you start again from concepts is there any research on that or studies done on that that is always the most difficult question that i get asked after talks because my answer would be well it should have started earlier right but it hasn't started earlier so my answer would be don't think in those dichotomies you know select the best curricula that you can find and try them out don't just go for one approach or the other because that's just going to reignite the math wars and we're trying to get away from that i don't know if there's specific evidence on students in middle school who are lacking these foundational competencies i think this is one important area of research where we need to go I think there's been a strong focus, and I'm included in that, on early numeracy and on the early building blocks. But what happens to students who fall behind, who, you know, there's this classic Matthew effect, where students with good foundational skills really improve, and those who don't have them continue to lag behind. We need to do more work on what can teachers do at the latter stages, when those students still lack those foundational competencies. How do we intervene? I don't have a perfect answer for you, except to say we definitely need to go there. Hi, um, I'm Zora and I work in Pakistan. Um, You made a comment earlier about how numbers don't need to be translated into different languages and that, that was really fascinating because Numbers and processes, mathematical operations, as far as I know, every language does have different words for them. Yes. And we deal with this idea of mother tongue-based instruction Mm -hmm. or being the best thing for the child, Mm -hmm. but then we say that maybe math is an exception. Just want to get your comments on how, what language should we be teaching yes. math in? Yes, mm-hmm. I mean, what I was trying to say is, and, and I fully agree with you, that there are different notation systems for numbers across the world, but I would say that in, in the majority of countries, people transition after some time to using Arabic numeral as a dominant visual representation of numbers. In spoken languages, of course, there's a huge variability in which numbers are represented. You know, for example, in my native language, German, I would say 31, which means 130, and in English we would say 31. And there is research to suggest that that can confuse students. You know, you think about the, the French language, it gets even more complicated. So there are these cross-linguistic differences. On these screeners that we've designed, We use uh, what we call non-symbolic representations, which would be dot arrays. So you're just judging the quantity of dots, irrespective of the language. And we're using Arabic numerals. So that's why I said those particular screeners don't need to be translated. In terms of the language of instruction, I think you are going to obviously instruct math in the mother tongue uh, to start with. In fully bilingual systems, that may switch. Uh, so, for example, I'm thinking of, of Singapore, which has four official languages. You know, math instruction is in English, but you still have mother tongue alongside. So, um, I, I do think there, there are going to be translation difficulties, but from all the research that we know, including brain imaging research, there isn't particularly strong linguistic influences on the core quantity representations. And it's those core quantity representations that I think we need to uh, get a good idea of where children are at when they enter uh, school because it is on those core quantity representations. They scaffold everything else. 
So those need to be, uh, those need to be intact for the system to really take off. Hi, um, I'm Tammy from uh, the Derby Research School in England. Um, as a woman, um, I've kind of read a lot of research or, or been exposed to a lot of research around um, women and men in meetings and how women have to be a certain degree confident that mm -hmm. they are correct when they put an idea across, pretty much like I am now. Um, and then uh, at the same time, men have a lower degree of confidence or threshold of confidence before they'll put an idea across. And whilst I know it shows over a kind of global level, um, the relative differences in attainment for boys and girls um, seems to be kind of um, no, no, no direct relationship. I was just wondering if there was any research around self-reported confidence in maths for boys and girls and how that relates to attainment. There is quite a lot of uh, research on that. Um, I was referring to one study of second graders um, where, where they did implicit measures and explicit measures. So implicit measures refer to something that's almost unconscious. Uh, so on both implicit and explicit measures, U.S. second grade girls uh, show a lower level of confidence in math, and they don't associate themselves with math as strongly as do boys. So, um, and then there is, of course, also a large literature on a phenomenon referred to as stereotype threat, which is the notion that if you are exposed to a stereotype such as girls perform more poorly on math tests than boys, uh, that can affect your performance. So, and that must then also affect kind of your self-esteem and your confidence in how, how, how good you are in math. So I think all of these things are interrelated and that's why I think it's so important to, to communicate the data around gender and math more clearly. And that will also, of course, involve changing the way the media represents people who are very strong at math. Final question over there, okay. Please stand up. I get the final question. Um, you touched on uh, the well-balanced curriculum. Yeah. Can you touch on uh, the, the teacher, the teacher in the classroom? What difference do you think they can make when they are teaching the children? They're looking at a full class of girls and boys, yes. but is there anything a teacher can do that can make a difference? Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, when it comes to the, to the curriculum, that obviously depends on that teacher's preparation and the availability of resources and diversity of curricula that they have in front of them. When it comes to things such as gender stereotypes or math anxiety, I think it is about being aware of that. I think the awareness is, there's, study, there's research showing that when female students know that there are no gender differences, then even the stereotype doesn't have an effect on their performance. So being informed about these things can change the way you interact with other people, right? If you, if you know that contrary to a stereotype that you might have held, girls perform equally as good as boys, then you might change your approach as a teacher to female students in your classroom. Similarly with math anxiety, uh, you know, many uh, elementary school teachers, at least in Canada, uh, go into elementary school teaching because they don't want to teach math, because they fear math, and that math anxiety can have an effect. So talking with teachers about their own math anxiety, making them aware of it, can make the whole teaching uh, uh, experience of math less stressful for them, 
and probably also leads to a, a, a decrease in sort of the, the transference of math anxiety from teacher to student. Yeah, uh, I'm Homa, I'm from Pakistan, and I represent the Park Alliance for Maths and Science, so we work very closely around students in mathematics. So my question would be, can curriculum or pedagogy play an important role in terms of inducing or reducing maths anxiety among students? I definitely think so. Uh, we, I don't know whether we know the specific facets of the curriculum that lead to a reduction in math anxiety. There is a very uh, commonly held notion that, for example, doing things at speed causes math anxiety. And there's some very famous people making that argument. There's actually no evidence for that. So I, I wouldn't say changing, you know, doing that is necessarily going to lessen math anxiety. Um, I think we need more, more work on that. I think math anxiety is a field of uh, empirical investigation that's only about 10 years old. So we're just getting to grips with the constructs, having the right measures. I think now is the time to try and look at some of these questions about, about which curricula are the best buffers against math anxiety. I am sorry, but there is time for discussions, of course. Daniel is still here. Also, the next session, the final session for today, will be on educational neurosciences, and you have seen some of the evidence. Daniel, that's his other real you know, field of expertise. He will be part of the panel and on stage together with two of the Vaki teacher ambassadors discussing what, what brain science and uh, teaching actually can learn from each other. I hope to see you all here. But for now, let's uh, thank Daniel Ansari for a great presentation. With a thank you. Panel.